Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. The Progress of the Gospel is our current news series based on Romans chapter 9 to 11. Today, Dr. Neufeld will focus on Romans 10 verses 4 to 8 in a message entitled, Everything Points to Christ. Luke 24 is the last chapter of that amazing book. It recounts the events around the resurrection of Jesus. And one of those events retells the story of two dejected followers of Jesus on the way to a small village, the village of Emmaus. Jesus has died and the hopes of these disciples are crushed. Suddenly Jesus walks with them and they are kept from recognizing him. Of all the things that happened in that encounter, one line from Luke's gospel has always caught my attention. Luke 24 verse 17 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That would mean that Jesus did a survey of what we now call the Old Testament, or more rightly, the First Testament, and showed these two men how he is the center of everything that was ever written and where the First Testament was pointing to him. And as I think about what he might have said, you know, I can think of any number of scriptures that he might have used to explain how it is that he is the subject of the entire Bible. But I wish I could have been there. It would have been the most amazing Bible study I've ever been to. Now, in Romans 10, Paul has been expressing his deep longing that the Jewish people might be saved. He points out that the Jewish people of his day have been rigorous and zealous in their study of the law and that they have completely misunderstood it. And then when we come to verses 4 to 8, Paul does, in a sense, what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. Now, before we dive right in, we might ask, how is this relevant to me? And here I suggest that there are at least three reasons why we should all sit up and take notes. First, if you're interested in sharing your faith with one of the Jewish people, this will interest you greatly. For many Jews believe that Christianity is entirely different from the Jewish faith. The idea that Christianity is essentially Jewish or that Judaism naturally leads to Jesus is entirely foreign to many. But God's people should be able to view their faith from the perspective of Judaism, and we ought to be able to share our faith that way as well. Now, second, I want to give you in our study today a whole Bible. I can't even begin to recount how often I've had the discussion with a Christian, and they're going to say, oh, that's in the Old Testament. And I think they mean from that that it's just not relevant anymore. And because of that, the Bible has lost its richness and its meaning. Many contemporary Christians don't understand how wonderful it is to study the book of Deuteronomy or 1 Samuel or the book of Isaiah and so forth. Yes, it is true that we have some of our favorite psalms, and sometimes we pluck these right out of context, and the entire Bible meant to direct and inform our faith is simply missing. I want to give you your Bible back. And third, when we have a view of the entire Word of God presented in two testaments, the, the first and the second, when we see all 66 books as relevant, we're going to grow in our faith as never before. We're going to be spared countless heresies and false teaching, and we're going to learn to worship our God with a richness that we never thought possible before. And so Paul's concern that the Jews of his day have completely missed the meaning of their Bible is important to us as well. So let's begin by reading 
today's Bible text, Romans 10, verses 4 to 8. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, I know that, as with a lot of the things that Paul writes, some of us might lose track. We find him difficult to understand. That's because his writing is dense and highly packed. Each word that he writes seems to weigh a thousand pounds, and it's more weightier than we can bear. But I have found that if we take our time and consider each word and phrase in order, the meaning becomes plain, and it becomes quite life-transforming. So let's do just that, one statement at a time. Remember that Paul has been describing perhaps the Pharisee who has rejected Christ, and to that he says in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law. Now I think it's fair to mention that verse 4 has been a very controversial verse because the word end, as translated in the English Bible, comes from the Greek word telos. Telos has a wide variety of meaning, but for our purposes, it can have three different meanings. First, it can mean fulfillment. If that's how it's translated, it would say Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Or second, it can mean goal. Christ is the goal or the aim or the purpose of the law. And third, it can mean termination. And in that sense, it would read, now that Christ has come, the law is no longer relevant. Its purpose is over. Now, I hope you see that depending on how you translate that one Greek word, telos, this passage can mean now that Christ has come, the law is over, or that the law prepares us for Christ, or that Christ is the true intent of the law. See, those are three very different ways of reading Romans 10, verse 4. And so how are we to decide what Paul has in mind? Well, interestingly enough, the early church fathers and as well the leaders of the Protestant Reformation saw verse 4 as meaning either that Christ was the fulfillment or the goal of the law. But in recent years, there are those who have said Christ is the termination of the law. Now, if you think about it, The English word end has some of the same range of meaning that the Greek word telos has. I might say this meeting has come to an end, meaning this meeting is now over. But I might also say the end of this meeting is higher production levels for our company, meaning that the goal of the meeting is higher production levels. And so the word end can mean two different things. Do you see, we tend to use the word end in English as the Greeks did as well. Now, here's a little rule. When you do Bible study, first study the immediate context. Second, study the rest of the scripture. And if we follow that little rule, we're going to find out that in the immediate context, Paul has been arguing that the Jewish religious teachers in their zeal for the law have missed knowledge or that they've completely misunderstood the meaning of the First Testament. And that would indicate that when he uses the word telos, he doesn't mean that the law is over. Rather, that Christ is the subject matter of the law. He's the intent of the law. And that fits so well with what Jesus taught as well. And it also fits very well with what Bible teachers have taught about this verse for 2,000 years. 
Christ is either the goal of the law or he is the fulfillment of the law. But he does not signal that the law has come to an end. So what does that mean? It means that if we study the law of Moses, that is, if we study the first five books in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy carefully, if we study those five books well, it should lead us to Christ and to his gospel. Let me tell a little story in which, you know, I was embarrassed beyond degree. It happened years ago. I was studying in seminary. I had started a new class, and I had a new professor who started his class by asking his students, what do you think the New Testament is? And then he answered his own question. He said, the New Testament is no more than a footnote on the old. Well, we left the class, and, and I was explaining to a fellow student that our new professor was obviously a heretic. I went on by explaining that I'd heard about this guy, and we should be wary about him. See, what I didn't know is that my professor's wife, who marked all his papers, was walking right behind me and listening to every word that I said. And she gently interrupted me and said, can I ask you a favor? Now, by then, I was so shocked and embarrassed that I agreed. And she said, could you commit yourself to listening carefully to what my husband says and what he means before you judge him? Well, I was ashamed, and what could I do? I I agreed. And in the coming weeks, I learned what he meant by footnote. He was talking about the kind of a book that has long and extensive explanatory footnotes of a text. Those footnotes explained what the book was saying. Without the footnotes, you would misunderstand the book. That, said my professor, is what Jesus and the New Testament has done for the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has come for the first time, now and ultimately, we can see what the law truly intended and what God wanted to communicate. Without Jesus, the Old Testament would never make sense. Uh, You can see that I had some apologizing to do, but I had so very much to learn. And I think that we can as well. Christ is the end or the explanation of the law. So stay tuned for the conclusion of today's program with Dr. John Newfeld in just a moment. Today, I want to share with you some encouraging words sent to us from a listener in Ontario. She wrote, it is absolutely refreshing to know that we have such an awesome Bible-based teacher on this side of the border. I've signed up for the daily audio mail. Words are not enough to express my genuine thanks. May Almighty God continue to bless and increase the work being done through Dr. Newfeld and the staff at Back to the Bible Canada. At Back to the Bible Canada, we're so grateful, grateful to our listeners, supporters, and the ministry of Bible teaching that God has allowed us to participate in. If you'd like to support this ministry, if you'd like to find out all the free resources that are available, or just discover more about Back to the Bible Canada, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. The Apostle Paul has been communicating that the reason why the law was written was to lead us to Christ. That means that the first five books of our Bible, commonly called the law, exist so that we can get a clear picture of Christ and of his gospel. Now, I know that many of us are trained to say a big yes to that, but we're hard-pressed to try to explain how it is that that's true. 
For instance, if you've ever tried to read through the book of Leviticus and the various sacrificial offerings and the food laws and the special holy days in Israel, especially the Day of Atonement, how does all of that lead us to Christ? And how does Christ and his gospel explain this stuff? Now, those are great questions. Now, thankfully, Paul helps us out here. Having made the argument that Christ is the goal of the law, he now provides us passages from the book of Leviticus and then from the book of Deuteronomy. Let's remember what he says, then let's set out to study what he says. So Romans 10 verse 5 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, just so we're keeping track, that's a direct quotation from Leviticus 18 verse 5. So let's keep reading. Romans 10, 6-8 says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, since we're still keeping track, this second quote comes from Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 13. Okay, I hope you're keeping track. The first quote came from Leviticus and the second from Deuteronomy, both from the law. So let me try to read it that way. Paul seems to be saying that when Moses writes about the righteousness based on law-keeping, he does so in Leviticus 18, verse 5, and when he speaks about righteousness based on faith, he does so in Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 13. Let me try that again. When Moses speaks about salvation through works of the law, look up Leviticus. But when Moses speaks about salvation by faith, look up Deuteronomy. I hope you see the difficulty with that. How can Paul seem to quote Moses against Moses and argue for the superiority of Deuteronomy over Leviticus? That seems to make no sense whatsoever. Well, as is always the case, it helps to go back to the source. So let's do that and let's read the context, Leviticus 18, 1 to 5. We read there, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Now the meaning should be clear. Don't get seduced by the culture and religion of where you have been or where you're going. Keep your eyes fixed on the law that I'm teaching you, and you're going to live. Now, that seems clear. God wants you to follow him and not the world around you. It sounds very much like the New Testament, doesn't it? It sounds like Romans 12, verse 2, where we're told not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed. Let your mind be renewed, concentrating on what God teaches and not what the culture around you is saying. But how can Paul imply that this is works religion or righteousness by law keeping? Well, I actually don't think he's implying that at all. But before I tell you why, please commit yourself to stay with me for for this might just transform your Bible study. So let's go ahead now and read Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14, the second passage that Paul quotes. There we read, For this command that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? 
Neither is it beyond the sea that we should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. I hope you can see what Deuteronomy is saying. Just like Leviticus, it demands that Israel not be conformed to the cultures around them, but instead be obedient to what God commands them to do in his law. But Deuteronomy adds, this command is not so hard that it takes an amazing person or amazing effort to do it. No, no, it's not that hard. In fact, the desire to do the word and to be obedient to the law of God is in your mouth and it's in your heart. Okay, by now it should be clear that Leviticus and Deuteronomy do not present us with a contrast, one being works righteousness and the other faith-based, grace-based righteousness. But here's where it gets really interesting. Many of the rabbis in Paul's day quoted from Leviticus 18 verse 5 all the time. It was their favorite verse. And when they quoted it, they quoted it to justify their works-based doctrine. You earn or merit God's favor by keeping the law they taught. And for them, Leviticus 18 verse 5 taught that. Keep the commands and you will establish your righteousness. And by the way, that's how some of us live today. And so that's how they lived. They disciplined themselves. They did the command. Then they imagined themselves that they had somehow earned righteousness. And in Philippians 3, Paul says, that's what I once thought too before I met Christ and before I understood the true intent or the goal of the law. So let's get practical for just a moment. Think of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. But let's expand on that command and put together the sum total of commands regarding whom we may have sex with. God says, you may not have sex with anyone except your husband or your wife, period. Now, from Leviticus 18, we learn that we must not get our attitudes regarding sex from our culture. Rather, we need to be obedient to God's law regarding our sexuality. Now, if you do that, you're going to live. Now, notice that does not mean that by refraining from adultery and premarital sex and any other kinds of sexual trysts that we have become righteous or earned righteousness. It doesn't say that at all. What Leviticus 18 really says is that we cancel out the life of God within us if we disobey him in regard to the law of sexuality. You see the difference? Law-keeping does not create righteousness, but law-breaking does cancel out righteousness. You don't become righteous by keeping the law, but you become unrighteous when you break the law. And as Paul will teach, righteousness, therefore, is given as a gift, a grace gift, a gift that comes from God. Now to Deuteronomy, which seems to say exactly that. Keeping yourself sexually pure is not so hard that you need to be a superman to pull it off. No, no. The word and the command has been placed into your heart. And because of that, you can do it. Now, that assumes that the only person who keeps the law is the one who has a changed heart or the one who has been transformed or the one who has been given the gift of righteousness. So you see, when the law is placed upon the unsaved person, the law condemns that person utterly. But when the law is added to the saved person, the law becomes a delight for it shows the life of God. 
So one step further. Paul says, don't you say who will ascend to heaven? And then he speaks of bringing Christ down. So what does that mean? And I think he's saying that the righteousness of faith does not require some mystical journey through the universe to find Christ. You don't have to become a monk and lock yourself away and see visions. Rather, the word is already near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. And the point is simple. Obedience to the commands requires a change of heart. And this, as the entire Bible teaches, has always been the case. And therefore, the goal of the entire law is Christ, to lead us to Christ and to his gospel. And on the other hand, Christ explains to us, if we listen to him, what the law has truly intended. I hope you see what the Pharisees got wrong. They thought that law-keeping made you righteous. But we're not righteous on our own at all. If you want to be righteous, God has to give you righteousness as a gift by grace. And once grace comes, our hearts are changed. And the very commands that once seemed to condemn us now are in our mouth and in our heart. They become life and the delight of our hearts. Once we know Christ, we delight to do his will because we have received his righteousness. John, thank you for bringing us through that for us. But here's a question. So do I, as a Christian now, am I required to fulfill the law? Yeah, you see, and this is so important to ask because many of us are confused about this. I mean, on the one hand, we're going to say, you know, you shall not commit adultery. That's not optional. You have to do that. But on the other hand, I, I'm you know, allowed to shave the corners of my beard and, and I'm allowed to eat uh, rare steak and, uh, you know, all those other things. So it seems like we're picking and choosing as we go through the law. And it's often been pointed out. But here, let me get back to a concept, and it's that Christ is the explanation for the law. If you allow the New Testament to be, as it were, the footnote or the explanatory comments on the Old Testament, the New Testament will guide us through that. Some parts of the law were intended for Israel alone and speak specifically to their cultural situation, and some are supracultural and speak to our day. How can we tell the difference? The good news, the New Testament explains it so well. If we just follow that, it becomes very clear. And the New Testament will tell us that it's always been about grace anyway. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Partnership in ministry is a value we hold highly at Back to the Bible Canada. Like-minded ministries working together for kingdom purposes. So I'm so pleased to let you know that Dr. John Newfeld will be participating in a number of Promise Keeper events across the country in the upcoming months, including Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Edmonton, as well as Abbotsford, British Columbia, for the Promise Keepers Legacy event this coming October 22nd, at Gateway Community Church. Men, for all the information you need or to register for any of the Promise Keeper events, visit promisekeepers.ca. Or to discover everything that Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or In Doubt is up to, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. And please continue to pray and support Bible teaching ministries across our country.